0: Herds and Curds with Carmen and Leanne, bringing you conversations with farmhouse cheesemakers and dairy producers. The first Sunday of the month at 7am on your favourite station, 3CR, 3CR digital and 3cr.org.au. Hello listeners, you are tuned to Herds and Curds on the 3CR Community Radio. We are in Copping, Tasmania, at the farm of Kate and Ian Field, who recently took over Tongola cheese. Welcome to Herds and Curds. G'day. Hello. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just a bit of backstory is that these guys took over an existing goat farm that was located in Signet. H- Signet. <laughs> so Cygnet? Hans
1: and Esther were, had Tongola cheese, or Tongola goat product, and they'd been running that for 15 years, and they slowly developed the brand, having started with two goats, We met them about six years ago and we bought our kids from them and then over time we've grown that herd on to where we are today and also taken on the the cheese making business.
0: So your business is a farmhouse production where you milk and make a lactic and rennet set goat's cheese. How many goats in your milking herd?
1: As of today we were milking 62.
0: And what breed of goats are these? We have
1: Swiss Toggenbergs with a, a couple of Salmon crosses in way back. Did
0: you choose this breed because of Hans and Esther or it's a breed that you knew a little bit about?
1: It was mainly probably to do with Hans and Esther but we were looking for good goats for Tasmanian countryside and where we are it's slightly hilly, it's slightly damp, we're a little rain pocket on the lower east coast of Tasmania and we, we had other goats on the farm first No, we had Kashmir's, Rangeland and Boar Goats. Oh, so
0: Boar Goats are a meat goat. Rangeland, are they also... They
1: were a fibre goat come, meat goat come, feral weed eater. And the farmer before us had about 300 of them on here for weed management.
0: This has been goat country in the
1: past. Mm, Very much so, since about the mid-80s, I believe. And we found that they weren't very robust. And we wanted a good, strong, healthy goat for what pasture we have and the environment we have. And we've found that the the toggies that we got as a dairy goat have been the best goat for our landscape.
0: Great. Well, that's a good way to choose your animal or the kind of farming you want to do by selecting via landscape, really, isn't it?
1: Well, that's how we approached buying a farm, was we, we had an enterprise in mind. And then we found a landscape that would suit that enterprise, not a piece of land that we saw and we thought would be nice and then change it to suit the enterprise. So mm. It was a way of trying to reduce any modification to the land or adaptation, it meant we could just come in and the landscape was perfect for what we wanted to do.
0: And so goats have a really high nutritional plane, they, they need that diversity, they need pasture, they need scrub, bark, leaves. Let's talk about your landscape and how that works for goats.
1: So what we're trying to do at the moment is create a Tasmanian pasture based on natives, perennials and a few annuals here and there. Goats are browsers, as you mentioned. 70% of their diet comes from woody weeds and plants and 30% comes from pasture, from grass. Mm. By having a Tasmanian pasture, we're trying to introduce a varied diet for them and our cattle love it as well. It means there's always something working. There's always some food going for them. And so with that, we've got 34 different species of plants they have yeah. access to. And they'll nibble on all sorts of things. So they're quite self-limiting, and they're mm-hmm. certainly very choosy in what they eat. Mm-hmm. The old adage that goats will eat anything isn't true. No, it's
0: not. They'll nibble
1: anything, mm. but they won't necessarily eat it.
0: Mm. And do you think they're grazing on all of those 34 species Pretty at much. some time in the year?
1: Through the year, you see the different plants moving. So there's a, a couple of grass species they don't really like that much, but neither do the cows. Um, but otherwise... Everything from the the sags to blackberry to the what's, rye grasses. What's SAG. That's a great question. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've got a mixture of native and and perennials. And okay, great. Because mm. our goat, uh, goats do. I mean, goats love native Australian grasses as well, don't they? Mm. Oh, the, uh, roughage. Roughage. You know, even that's if right.
1: even if it may not be the best grass for a sheep or cow herd,
0: mm.
1: the, the goats love it because they're interested in roughage mainly.
0: Mm. And so you milk once or twice a day?
1: For the first month of the season while our kids are small, we milk twice a day. Once the kids grow and keep going, then we milk once a day. And we leave our kids with their mothers for the bulk of the lactation season. And we only milk within the natural lactation season of the goats or the natural lactation cycle.
0: Which is how many months?
1: It's about eight months. Mm-hmm. So we milk generally from the end of September, early October through until June, July, and we actually do separate our kids from their mothers in April because that's when the girls go back in with the boys and we don't really like teenage pregnancies, so we no. do split them up
0: Adolescent that pregnancies, that's right. So once a day milking, does that have an impact on the quality or the quantity of the milk?
1: We believe it improves the quality of the milk. It also means that we can leave the mothers with their kids so we get a really healthy herd.
0: So it's so a we, kind of quality of life situation we, for the
1: goats. As well. So we do reduce their risk of mastitis because any milk that's left from us milking actually gets sucked out by the kids. Mm. That has its advantage. Because they're turning the milk over on a fairly regular basis, we believe we're, we're getting the best milk and it's really soft on the goats. Mm. So they, um, they have a lovely life while they're out in the paddocks. We split them up at night when they come in, about an hour before sunset. And so yep. we take the morning milk which the kids wouldn't necessarily take anyway. And then generally we try and start milking around sunrise so that by the time we finish, the kids are ready to go, everyone's up and off they go into the pasture together for the day, which in Tassie is really long hours in summer and it gets nice and short in winter.
0: <laughs> well, that the winter can be a, a time of relief for farmers, can't it? Because often you just work in all of the, the sunlit hours of the day and winter is a relief to have those shorter days sometimes.
1: I'm nodding. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so you talked a little bit there about quality of life. You've obviously got a great relationship with your goats. Talk about your relationship with them and what's important for you within that.
1: Same as we, we run cattle as well. We have a small beef herd. Our whole farming ethos is about animal welfare as best as we can provide and a low-stress environment. So whether it's the cows or whether it's the goats, we go and we talk to them. You know, Whenever you go out in the paddock and you see them, you have a chat they get used to you. It's about low pressure. So whether that's in the dairy with the goats or whether it's with the cattle in, in the in the yards, it's a very soft operation that we're aiming for. And that low stress translates, we think, into better product that, that we get from our animals at the end of the day.
0: Let's look at your working day. Talk us through a typical working day.
1: Well, at about 1.30 in the morning, I generally get a call from my daughter to say that she's awake. Then about 2.30 in the morning, <laughs> she comes and joins us in bed.
0: That was only at about last
1: About 4.30, night. Hamish, our little boy, he decides he wants to hop into bed as well. And then at 5.30, I get up.
0: All right. So there's the human kids <laughs> and those, the goat
1: kids. So generally, the working day starts at about half past five in the morning for me. I get up and I go up to the dairy. We try and start milk at the moment at about six. And then... Usually milking takes about an hour and 20 minutes, then it's half an hour of cleaning in the dairy. Generally somewhere around there we'll actually take the milk of the day and, and get it ready for pasteurising and, and set it on its way.
0: And do you do um, mm. a batch pasteurise or do you do it through a plate heat system?
1: No, we do batch pasteurising. Mm-hmm. So we're very small. We're milking 62 goats today. We, we sort of fluctuate a little bit around there depending on who wants to come into the dairy and who doesn't. <laughs> then... It goes in 20 litre buckets. We take it into the cheesery, into the batch pasteuriser, which is an old steam kettle that actually came from the mental hospital at New Norfolk. And we'll process up to 180 litres a day.
0: And so into buckets, that means it's actually not getting pumped, is it?
1: It does get pumped just through the particulate filter, paper filter, and that's it. Mm -hmm. So once it's in the bucket, that's it. It's just hand-carried into the cheesery and then into the pasteuriser.
0: Which is lovely for goat's milk, isn't it, being such a fragile mm. milk?
1: It is. It, the fragility of the goat's milk is is really important. The less you handle it, the better, the less it's pumped, and if you can use a diaphragm pump, that's better again. Mm-hmm. Just the less mushing around, and goat's milk will break down. Being naturally homogenised, as soon as you start to bash it, then it starts to degrade and you get those bucolic acids being released from the, the fatty acid. The softer you can handle it, the better
0: it is. Mm, beautiful.
1: And luckily for most days, we're making cheese either every day or every other day. So the milk never really lasts for more than 24
0: hours. You're listening to 3 A D O. Given how fresh your milk is, would you have a goal to make a raw milk in the future if that was a possibility?
1: We'd love to. I keep saying I'm not a cheese maker, I make cheese, but I really am a farmer and I don't know enough about the the intricacies and how raw milk cheeses can change. Mm. Once I understand that and I know a little bit more, then we'd love to.
0: Okay, so as a farmer, um, talk to us a little bit about your agricultural practices. You've been a scientist in the past, so you've got this great background.
1: Really, our whole farming ethos is about ecology. So what I've learned about wildlife systems and natural systems is what we now try and do on the farm. So one of the main tenets of ec- of ecology is if you want a really healthy system, you need diversity, which is where our idea of a Tasmanian pasture comes from. The more diverse a system, the more likely something is going to be doing well at any one time. And if you've got lots of different species within a system within an ecosystem, it's more resistant to change. It's more resilient, it can bounce back if there's problems or if it's stressed in one way, it can respond to keep its overall stability. So that's what we're trying to do. One one example of that would be climate change. Okay. So we always have some grasses mm. or some plants that are growing well within our landscape. And right. that allows us to, to, you know, have a reasonable production all the time rather than being trapped in a, in a boom-bust
0: cycle. And so do you feel quite threatened by climate change in your agricultural activity?
1: Climate change is real, for yes. sure. Yes. And we're seeing... Farmers across the country and internationally are seeing that... The climate is changing, weather patterns are changing. We're, in Tassie we used to get, where well we are, this little rain pocket, pocket of Brim Creek, we used to get a lovely northeasterly and easterly weather pattern coming in and we get moisture coming in off the sea and then it would rise over the tier where we are, the ragged tier, and it would drop rain. We're now seeing less of that. So instead of being a lovely moist wet cycle, we're getting dry and deluge. And we're in the middle of one of those. Well, hopefully we're getting toward the end of one of those at the moment. You're in
0: a drought. We, mm-hmm. ha- we haven't
1: we have had a good rain for almost 18 months.
0: And are you struggling for water?
1: We're still doing okay. Again, one of the things we did when we moved onto the farm was to destock. We halved the number of cattle on the farm. Okay. And we reduced the number of goats a little bit. So, again, by having a healthy, unstressed system, it's more resilient to the changes we're seeing.
0: So you're building a robust system that's appropriate for this landscape.
1: That's the aim.
0: And goats are... What do you think about goats as an animal, selecting goats as an animal in the light of climate change or environmental degradation or other ecological factors? In
1: the right place, at the right stocking density, they can be a a good animal to have on a landscape. Mm. In the wrong place and at the wrong stocking density, Mm. they can do the worst damage around. Mm. Again, if we could balance stock levels and make sure that the landscape is providing enough for everyone. And we have a quite a healthy population of wallabies and wombats and other natives on the farm as well.
0: That you're sharing your pastures with. And
1: that's what we're trying mm-hmm. to do. So by, by doing that, then we have this robust system, or more robust system.
0: Well, those native animals are part of your diversity, aren't they?
1: They are. They yeah. all provide a role and they all have a function.
0: And you don't see that as competition?
1: not not i'm shaking my head sorry no. to the listeners <laughs> um, no they're not really competitors if if we were stressed and we were trying to run the absolute maximum number of of animals on our landscape then yes they would be competition but by taking a step back and having a long-term view of medium production or medium to medium level to high level production we're not trying to force every dollar out of the landscape we rely on the quality of what's coming off the landscape rather than the quantity to make sure that we're sustainable both environmentally but also financially. If you don't have income coming into a farm, you end up having to sell the farm. So then the next person can do whatever they want.
0: And so knowing that, are you continually kind of managing or changing or altering how you look at your farming, what practices? We
1: have an end goal. Mm -hmm. We have an end goal for an environmentally sustainable farm where we produce the highest quality of produce and maybe if the climate keeps affecting us as it is and we get less rainfall as we go on, then we'll look to reduce the beef herd further okay. to offset and manage how we do it. Also, our fences aren't quite adequate enough for rotating pasture, but what do
0: you, what, there are, How many acres are you on?
1: We're on about 300 acres mm-hmm. and it's a, a sort of sloping basalt tiers. So we have good, very good pasture, and we have very good soils. Our soils are generally somewhere between 300 and 400 mil deep, and we have strong microbial processes going on. So they can handle quite a lot, but they don't like the dry. And if what we've tried to do with our, with our pasture growth is actually keep it thick. So we try and create a, a microclimate underneath the pasture level so that we reduce our evaporation rates, we mm-hmm. reduce wind stress and shear across the, the soils and we'll very much try and reduce any area of bare soil okay. so that we always have good growth in the pasture and we'll try and leave it with some growth on mm-hmm. rather than letting it become bare.
0: Do you cut hay on this landscape?
1: Sometimes. yes. Occasionally. We have in the past. This is the first year we haven't.
0: Because it, it wasn't appropriate? Because It there... seemed
1: as though it was going to be a little bit dry. Okay. And also we needed to give our pasture paddocks a spell Mm. from cutting for hay. And we're now growing to the point whereby we can just about cut enough hay for what we need for the year, but the paddocks don't get a bit of a break. So a, a break every so often is really good to increase the soil, the seed density within the soils. If you've got really high seed density, then you get high plant density. High plant density means you have really good ground cover. Really good ground cover means less you get less direct sunlight. Reduced evaporation rates, greater uh, moisture retention rates.
0: That's the goal, isn't it? 100% ground cover. If you can. If you can. Yeah. I mean, goats make paths.
1: I mean, they make little tracks. We do have a tractor, but it's rarely taken on the paddocks. Mm-hmm. Our main vehicle for the last five years on the farm has been a quad bike with a trailer if we need to carry things. Not to say we don't take our ute or the tractor on the farm. We do, but we keep try to keep it to an absolute minimum to reduce any compaction risk.
0: That's great. One of the things you mentioned earlier was that water is one of your challenges and you'd like to, you'd like to put more cups on your milking stand to actually increase efficiency but one of the other impacts of that is that it, it takes more water.
1: We've got to put a couple more rain tanks on, the sheds.
0: We're shed farmers. <laughs> we're, not, we're not cheese farmers, we're shed farmers. <laughs> so because you're off the grid, aren't you? Uh,
1: electricity we're on the grid on the grid but you've but got no water so, on so rainfall is what we get we have four big dams across the farm mm-hmm. so there is the potential to bring a pipe from one of those dams down to the dairy for wash down water and stock water but we'll always use rain water for cleaning
0: mm-hmm.
1: and cheese making
0: but you do produce some uh, energy on farm don't you with solar
1: we have solar water heating at the moment and, and- we're just going through the process of getting solar panels, PV on the on the dairy as well, to okay. fill our needs there. And again, the ideal will be, and what we're aiming for is to be carbon neutral.
0: That's a great goal. And we're
1: most of the way there. So it's just the PV is the last step.
0: And then waste, so what sort of waste system do you have on site?
1: We have a very simple waste system on, on farm, <laughs> all the waste from the dairy, which is diluted water mainly, and then obviously the carbon from the goats, the poo and wee all goes into a trafficable solids trap. We have a composting hay floor in the goat house, so it acts as quite a large filter, so we really only have a lot of liquid waste going through and then any poo that's been dropped when the goats have come in for milking and a little bit of hay that's on their hooves. That all goes into a trafficable solids trap, then into a sump. The liquid waste from the cheesery, which again is mainly water, gets captured. We aerate it for a a little while and then we store it. And then all of that goes back onto our pasture as irrigation. And And then the composting hay floor, which hmm. is in the the goat house, we rip that out every six to nine months. And then, again, we windrow that for a while, compost it down, and then it goes out onto the paddocks as well. Although that's really Kate's domain.
0: And what about whey? It's, you know, in our industry it's considered... uh a waste product for some industries it's a byproduct which is reused but uh, what do you guys do with your way
1: we try and do both mm. so we we reuse it in that it goes it gets taken away and used by one of our neighbors a stock feed mm. we're tinkering with the idea of using it for stock feed and re-blending it with um, some of the grains that we'll feed the goats.
0: So give it back to the goats. Mhm. And it's, it's particularly nutritious, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, and the calves love it. <laughs> mm. And again, it's a it's a it's a booster, so to help them grow. And then we're also just starting down the track of actually using it as a byproduct and actually selling it. Okay. In its own right.
0: As uh, consumable. Yes. Mm.
1: So r- chefs are very interested in the use of whey, for marinating or in bread starters, all sorts of reasons.
0: And do they love acid whey and sweet whey?
1: They do, and they Mm. love the acid whey specifically.
0: Mm. Well, the acid whey is particularly nutritious, isn't it?
1: No, I love it. If I don't get lunch while I'm making (laughs) cheese, I'll often slide a little cup down. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher, and higher, and higher. Support 3CR.
0: Farmhouse cheesemaking is not a particularly common profession in Australia, nor is it a field we can actually get any education in. What's been your trajectory to becoming a farmhouse cheesemaker, even though you call yourself a farmer who makes cheese?
1: Both Kate and I have always had a, a love and a passion of cheese. Before we actually came on farm, we did a couple of cheese making courses just to make cheese at home, which was always fun. And we sort of would make them and we'd stick little labels on and we'd give them to our friends and we would get really excited <laughs> by the fact we were making cheese. <laughs> then, in a more serious light, when we decided to do it commercially, we met Hans and Esther, who are the original Tongola cheese makers and farmers. They have a a heritage of making cheese in the Swiss Alpine region, so in the Alpage. And they came to Australia and then bought some goats and started making cheese and slowly and very much under the radar made some of the best goat's cheese in Australia. Mm. It's arguable, but they do. It's a beautiful cheese and it's very well renowned by chefs in Hobart. I learned from them, really, and so over four-year period while we were transitioning, I would stay down when I delivered milk and learn how to make cheese their way.
0: And so they've been a great resource for you guys and presumably still are?
1: Absolutely. We still catch up with them every so often. We just wanted their taste buds on some cheese we made and mm. had a lovely, very quick lunch of cheese and water. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, and then from reading, so from science, I have a background in science and when you want to learn something, you find the source of information, you research it, you find as much information you can, you decipher through, you... Learning from people's experience, learning and listening mm. is, is also a really important way of doing it. Mm. I haven't used Google, except um, for looking at pictures of cheese.
0: Google lies sometimes, anyway. Google does lie. So, are, are you optimistic about this industry? I don't
1: think we'd have started if we didn't. Mm. We, it's hard work being a a farmer and a dairy farmer and then making cheese on farm it's really enjoyable though and it's not just about eating cheese (laughs) it there's great joy on a farm Mm. there's sometimes periods of great sorrow as well Mm. when when things don't go right or you lose an animal or Mm. the first year we were on the farm there was the denali bushfires the fire missed us by about a kilometer Mm. whereas the community was was heavily affected Mm. and so that was a period of sorrow for some people and a a really great start for others Mm -hmm. and the community has rebounded really well Mm -hmm. and the community we live in is very strong and very supportive of these crazy people who came bought some land and wanted to farm some goats
0: your local people consume your product are great supporters of your product yes and tassie is isn't it it's tassie it's true you know you come to tassie people want to eat local food and
1: yes they do so a lot of people would like to to try what's being grown here. Mm. Tassie has this clean, green image, which is mostly true, but it does produce some world-class products. And whether that's wine, whether it's spirits, Tassie's getting quite a reputation for, Mm. or whether it's artisan cheese and meats. Now this is off, necessarily Mm. off the record, Uh. (laughs) but you might be able to use it, if I say it carefully enough. (laughs) We're still getting a lot of imported cheese Mm. in on the market, so sometimes in our stores, we're getting swamped by choice. And that tends to mean that sometimes the local products aren't being supported as well as they possibly could.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a very appropriate comment to make that um, imported cheese frequently is also, from a price point, is actually often more affordable. And that's because of lots of European markets, agricultural systems are heavily subsidised, you know, that we don't have those subsidies here. And the other question to ask is... What European, what European cheese are we getting? Because it's mostly industrial, yeah. industrially produced, well produced, but industrially produced cheese. And it doesn't compare to a farmhouse production. No.
1: And that farmhouse production gives you a special cheese. That's it's right. not, necessar- ne- not necessarily always the same. Yeah. There's some variation and you get beautiful variation. And it's, it's that variation that I love. Not every batch is always exactly the same. Not every cheese is a plastic-looking piece of cheese. Mm. There's variation in it. You get a couple of little spots of white mould on some things and you get a couple of little green spots on another. But oh, it's a the cheese,
0: bit bigger this week. Or... The, the yeah.
1: cheese tastes fantastic. Mm. That's really what we're aiming for is good-tasting cheese. Safe cheese,
0: mm. but
1: really enjoyable cheese. And that little bit of variation is... I think is part of it.
0: And I guess that's the advantage of selling directly to consumers, isn't it? That you can have that conversation with people, you can educate people, and people can understand your production and what you value.
1: Absolutely. And, and along with that, it's one of the reasons why we haven't signed up for organic status. We mm. could apply tomorrow. But what organic status is doing is saying to someone in a faraway place, these people have adhered to a set of rules. Mm. I would prefer that people phone me up or come to visit us at a farmer's market. And those people tend to be far away. Mm. Our market, the people we sell cheese to, are Tasmanians at the moment. We haven't managed to really leap out of the state. Maybe in time, we'd like to. Is most
0: of your production sold in Tasmania?
1: 95%, to 99% of our cheeses are sold only in Tassie.
0: And you don't have any problem selling your product?
1: Not at the moment.
0: but it, uh, but However, it is a goal to sell interstate?
1: We would like to. I mean, obviously, we, we need to grow our herd a little bit more. Mm. We need to get some more income so we can employ some people so we can have a more workable lifestyle. Mm.
0: What advice would you give to someone that wanted to become a farmhouse cheesemaker? Marry a millionaire. <laughs> it's a... It is expensive. It's a really expensive thing to do so you need to look at the model. The land is expensive. So do you buy land or do you share farm which is a perfectly great option but is going to be really difficult if you're starting out and want to start slowly before you've got an income coming in. So you've got land, you've got then all the regulations that dictate how your dairy needs to be set up and how it needs to comply with those regulations. And setting up a a cheese room is really, really expensive.
1: And that's on the the financial side, the economic side. But the sustainability side, I mean, I was lucky Mm. to come from a science background Mm. where I had a good understanding of natural systems. But farming systems and cheese making systems... Go and and work on a dairy farm. It's relentless. It's one of the things you have to be really strong-willed to want to do it. Disciplined. And disciplined to actually carry it out because it's every day at 5.30 Mm. for us. And I've made it easy. We don't milk any earlier. And learn about the different systems that are appropriate for what you want to do because every day you'll be up milking. Then you've got to make cheese. Mm. And it's a lifestyle and you have to want to do it. So go and work on a dairy farm, get up at 2.30 in the morning, milk cows at 3 o'clock every day, (laughs) have a bit of a break, get used to how dairying works, and then see if you think you can add in another working day making cheese on top of that. Another profession. Because I'm not saying don't do it, do it for sure. And it's really a great life (laughs) and fantastic produce and it's really rewarding to make great cheese. But it's relentless and it's tiring. And you have to know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. And for us, that's winter. Mm. We start in September and we won't take a break. I won't leave the farm until May. I think in the last, since September, which is now what, five months, Kate and I have been out to dinner twice. And I think we've been to lunch once. Otherwise it's on farm, it's work every day. Due to our own success, which is wonderful, we just made cheese every day. We okay. didn't make cheese on Christmas Day, mm-hmm. but we did make cheese on New Year's Day.
0: We did do other farming jobs on Christmas Day. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: But they're fun, and it's a very lovely, rewarding
0: lifestyle. So well, thank you. I mean, that's wonderful advice, and thank you for your also your wonderful optimism. It is a great industry. Um,
1: oh, I think with, with everything, if you, as long as you've got good produce and you're striving to, to make great produce and be better, then there'll always be people wanting to eat
0: it. Well, let's eat some. It's sitting in front of us, sorry folks, but we're um, tuning out and we're gonna taste some cheese. Yummo. Thank you, Kate and Ian Field.